Hi, this is your host, Corbin. I'm Alan. And this is your guide for David Lynch's Dune. Before we get into the making of the film, allow me to take you back to 1984 to remember the top movies released that year. They were Footloose, Gremlins, Once Upon a Time in America, Sixteen Candles, The Neverending Story, Children of the Corn, Amadeus, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Conan the Destroyer, and The Last Starfighter. From that year, we have reviewed Ghostbusters, The Terminator, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Karate Kid, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and many more, actually. So links to all of those reviews are in the show notes below. If you'd like to reminisce more about the films of 84, then head over to letterbox.com and make sure to follow me and Alan over there. Links to our profiles are also below. Man, 84 was a great year. Oh, yeah. I th- I'm sure we've said that in the past, but looking back <laughs> on it now, that's a great year for film. A lot of good stuff out of it. Truly that was. At the 56 Academy Awards, Best Picture went to Terms of Endearment. After Alejandro Jodorowsky failed to secure sufficient funding for his version of Dune in the 70s, which we did talk about that last week, his producer met with the De Laurentiis family to sell them the rights. Italian movie mogul Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights as a gift for his daughter because Frank Herbert's novel was one of her favorite books. At that point, she was an accomplished film producer and Dino was busier with other projects, but as you'll see, he still had a heavy hand in the direction of the film. Now, with the rights in hand, the producers needed a director. Originally, none other than Ridley Scott was offered the chance to direct after his success with Alien. Ooh. That would have been interesting. That would be very, very interesting. I, I honestly kind of want to see Ridley Scott take on Dune, actually. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to see that. At the same time, he was offered what would become Blade Runner, but Dune was actually far more attractive. Sadly, his older brother tragically passed away, so the undertaking of Dune no longer held its appeal, and instead he went with Blade Runner, which we have reviewed and we've talked about it wouldn't be an SSG podcast without getting Blade Runner in there somehow. And it yeah, at some just, point just worked out that way. <laughs> 34 year old director David Lynch, fresh off his success of his second film, The Elephant Man, earning eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and two for Lynch himself. He began working on none other than Blue Velvet and Alan you and I are no stranger to David Lynch. Just want mm-hmm. to in- inject that here. This is our first David Lynch review here on the podcast. And it's kind of funny. It worked out to be Dune. Oh, you're right. I I, I guess I didn't realize that. This is our first David Lynch movie. Uh, wow. That's interesting. Because, yeah, you mentioned Elephant Man, Blue Velvet. I was like, yeah, we I've seen both of those. And, of course, before Elephant Man was the one that really put him on the map, Eraserhead, um, at least in terms of, you know, a promising filmmaker and was very lucky to get that as popular as it was. I was like, yeah, I know all these. And now that you're saying it, you're right. This is indeed the very first David Lynch film that we are reviewing, which is surprising because of, I guess what we'll get into in a, I guess a second, but you're right. That is correct. So why was blue velvet, not David Lynch's third film? Well, an executive at Warner brothers hated the script. He couldn't get the project off the ground, so he was looking for new ideas to make something happen. All of a sudden, he received a call from none other than George Lucas, the biggest name in science fiction at the time and maybe still to this day. 
this is the part of the story I always find very fascinating because this is a very interesting story, listeners. Many, many twists as you're just beginning to find out. So he met with Lucas and Lucas wanted Lynch to direct none other than Return of the Jedi. I, I honestly can't even imagine what that would be like. I do remember hearing rumors about that, that David Lynch was tapped to at one point do Return of the Jedi. That would have been interesting. Had he done that instead yeah. of Dune. Hmm. So Lynch in an interview with Chris Rodley recounted how he doesn't really like pure science fiction. He wanted to mix it with other genres and he really didn't want to be under Lucas's thumb. After turning down Lucas, his producer on Blue Velvet, Richard Roth, offered him the chance to adapt, believe this, Alan, Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which we have mm. also reviewed, Manhunter and Red Dragon. So we nearly could have been reviewing the David Lynch version, which actually may be amazing. Yeah. I mean, how lucky is David Lynch, though, right? Because he just <laughs> only did a couple of movies, both of them. I mean, uh, Elephant Man's not... I guess as out there as a racer head is, but it's only like his second film. And he's like return of the Jedi, yeah. star Wars, uh, red dragon, uh, all kinds of stuff. But lucky man, this David Lynch is for <laughs> being so early in his career. Big time. And you know, this was before silence of the lambs had come mm -hmm. out or any of Thomas's Thomas Harris's novels had come out. So David Lynch had first crack at bringing Hannibal Lecter to the big screen. But he turned, he got turned off by that idea until Dino calls and says, he just calls him up and says, read Dune, I might have something for you. Mm -hmm. David Lynch thought he said June. He thought he said the word June. So he had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> in, in class of David Lynch style, he eventually figured it out. He had never even read Dune before. He didn't really know the first thing about it except his friend said it was great, which got his creative juices flowing. So why did David Lynch get a call from Dino? Well, Dino's daughter, Raffaella, was so moved by the Elephant Man, she left it in tears and realized Lynch had the vision and emotional ability to bring Herbert's novel to life. Hmm. So Lynch got to work writing the script with Chris DeVore and Eric Berggren, his Oscar-nominated co-writers on Elephant Man, Ultimately, Lynch had to let them go, though, because he realized his creative control would quickly run out of his hands. He spent a year working with author Frank Herbert, dissecting the novel, trying to understand the deep world Herbert had created, all the while trying to figure out a way to bring it to life on the big screen. Lynch credits Dino with helping him pare the script down to 135 pages, which would clock the movie around 2 hours and 15 minutes. More on that later. That is actually an official um, statement from David Lynch. I know the seventh and final shooting script, the seventh draft of the shooting script, had a more clocking in around three hours. But like I said, we will talk about that here in a little bit. Once shooting began, Herbert frequently appeared on set, helping actors with pronunciation of the book's phraseology. Lead actor Kyle MacLachlan recounts how Herbert was very happy to see his vision come to life, and he didn't impose himself into the production of the film. Herbert was even the first one to use the film clapboard to kick off shooting. Oh, that's cool. In fact, Herbert was so impressed with Lynch's adaption, he said, 
quote, this will go down in history as one of the few films that follows the book so carefully, people will ask themselves leaving the theater, what did they leave out? As for the cast and crew, the De Laurentiis were able to assemble an all-star crew. Tony Masters, production designer, who was art designer for Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I have dissected 2001 listeners. I will drop a link to my uh, video review of that below. Um, Kiyashi Yamazaki, he was the fight coordinator. He was also working on the Conan films at the same time, which the um, De Laurentiis were producing on the set right next door. Um, Kit West, he was the special mechanical effects um, Oscar winner for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Carlo Rambaldi, who built E.T. and had won multiple Oscars at that point. And of course, Sean Young, who plays Chani in this. She was just coming off of Blade Runner. Also, the famous Max von Sydow, Jurgen Proschnow, who we reviewed um, a couple months ago in um, Air Force One. He was um, General Raddick. That's he was not right. in it very much, though. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, a lot of big names here. I mean, even compared to Jodorowsky's Doom, which we recorded last week, um, mm-hmm. you know, that one was also trying to go for all-star cast and all-star crew and all kinds of things. So it's like kind of happening again here where the biggest, one of the greatest books of sci-fi gets the greatest cast, at least at the time. Lead star Kyle McLaughlin was the only real rookie. In an interview, he said, I was a big fan of the books at age 15. I had just graduated from acting school, starred in a play in Seattle, when the casting director came to town looking for an unknown. He was only stage trained at that point, never acting on camera before. Lynch and Raphael liked his audition so much that they had him come down to LA to test and he landed his first major role. The last piece of the puzzle was finding a composer. Opting for something non-traditional, as Lynch tends to do, he asked the rock group Toto to score the film. Hmm. Toto was fresh off their successful album Toto 4, featuring the song, I'm sure we all know it, you know, Bless the Rains Down in Africa. Yep. At the time, Toto was also offered Dune and Footloose. They had to pick one or the other. The later soundtrack went on to sell 10 million copies, so they kind of uh, kind of missed out on a huge opportunity there. Yeah, the yeah, I mean, hindsight is 2020, but had they done <laughs> that, would that would have been interesting to hear, to hear Toto do the soundtrack to Footloose. Toto had never done a film score before, but they were mostly eager for the job. They felt it seemed more artistically exciting than simply doing a movie soundtrack. Ultimately, it proved to be an arduous process, one they would never do again. In fact, Lynch brought in Brian Eno to compose the prophecy theme, a move that miffed the band members. Hmm. Even the now famous James Newton Howard ghost wrote the cue, The Trip to Arrakis, because band member David Page's father was the conductor for many of Howard's film scores. Oh, wow. So this really isn't all Toto. They've got Brian Eno, who was huge at the time, Mm -hmm. um, coming in, helping out. And even James Newton Howard and other people were actually ghostwriting parts of the scores. Um, They're just not credited. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, at least Toto gets their name on the score, but 
they were not the ones who did everything. Um, right. That's interesting that we had some involvement from James Newton Howard. I guess I didn't mm-hmm. realize he was working this early. Yeah, we've, um, he wasn't as prominent. He would go on to become very, very famous. And it was the lead member of the band, David Page's father, who was mm-hmm. the conductor for the orchestra that recorded the score for Dune. He right. and um, James Newton Howard were working together and Howard would go on to use him as the conductor for like almost all of his film scores in the future. Gotcha. Shooting for the film ensued for six months in Mexico City, where the desert heat was blistering hot and on eight massive sound stages used twice over. So once they were done with a sound stage, they would rebuild it, rebuild a different thing on it again. Also, another six months of shooting occurred just for miniatures along with other special effects. Man, so that's over a year of just shooting. Uh, yep. Man, usually movies only spend a couple months doing that or a few months, maybe four at most. Yeah, at the most. Man, <laughs> that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of shooting. Yeah, so it was a year to write the script, a year to shoot, and then a, almost a year with um, editing and post-production, essentially. Man. So it was a three-year-long process. Um, we'll get into more of that in a minute, but the crew also consisted of nationalities across five countries, extras numbering in the thousands, and 8,000 costumes were produced, making this a truly massive undertaking for the young director. Oh, this is yeah. his third movie. <laughs> oh, I could only, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I bet we get to the budget portion. I'm curious to know how how big the budget was for 1984. But that's crazy. Like you said, for a, a director who's it's only his third movie, that's, that's huge. That's huge. So during this process, the De Laurentiis' feared Lynch's vision would quickly get out of control if he was not kept in check. Lynch believes they wanted something more akin to the Elephant Man, but if he strayed into a Razorhead territory, that's where they curbed his creative mind. Also, after Sting agreed to shooting a scene fully in the nude, the <laughs> De Laurentiis made the call to have the film be a straight PG. Remember, PG-13 was just about to become a reality. Right. Now, this is my speculation, but Lynch likely would have made this into an R-rated film if he had his way. Just watching all of his other films are pretty much all rated R. Um, you know, featuring nudity, there, there's a still of Sean Young wearing a very see-through blouse. And also, there likely would have been uh, much more violence in this movie, at least blood. But you'll find out in a minute um, why they were not going to let that happen because of marketing and merchandising. But... Ah. Talk about that here in a second. (laughs) So once it came time to compile the final film, Lynch would give up another year of his life. He and Dino fought over the runtime of the film. Lynch wanted a three hour cut, whereas Dino wanted no longer than two hours and 17 minutes. It's no surprise Dino won. He was the one writing the checks after all. Mm. Yes, what happens? What is the producer's job? It technically is his project, unfortunately. And this is the whole reason David Lynch would never work with a big budget studio again. This also was going to be domestically distributed by Universal Studios. So they also had them to answer to. Ah. 
With so much excise from the final cut, that meant entire sequences had to be reshot or done in voiceover to quickly explain things the producers believed people would not understand. Lynch claims 40% was added later on. During the final editing process, he worried himself sick. The film would not be a success, so he actually remembers very little about finishing the film. Editor Anthony Gibbs said, quote, I don't I didn't see how we could make a movie out of it, but Lynch did a very good job of paring it down into a movie. Now, there is a contingent of fans that swear they have seen a four hour cut of the film. Go on out to Reddit. You will find people swearing up and down when they were kids. They had a copy of the four hour cut of the film and that it has been buried by the studios. More on that later. The longest cut was screened in Mexico City, clocking in between four and a half hours and five hours and 15 minutes. Whoa. <laughs> but keep in mind that was a work print missing special effects. Plus, they were actually still shooting the film. Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. So that cut, while in existence at one point, was never commercially available as some fans believe. In 1988, Dune was aired on television over two nights with a total runtime of 186 minutes. A few years later, Raffaella and Anthony Gibbs would go back into the editing booth to recut the film without Lynch, since Universal would not properly compensate him, according to him. This new 177-minute cut would debut on home video as Dune Extended Edition. The only thing missing, aside from a few terrifying scenes actually, which we'll talk about in the full review, is Lynch's name. He disavowed the version, having them put Alan Smithy for director, a common name directors use when they don't want their names associated with the project any longer, and Judas Booth for screenplay, a combination of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, and John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. As you can see, Lynch was not happy with them recutting his film, and he wanted nothing to do with the extended edition. Yeah, I, I can see, especially with a director like like Lynch, where you know every film that he has is he wants it to be like his vision, and now that he has already had issues with producer Dino De Laurentiis and what he wants versus what David Lynch wants. And now you've got somebody else coming in and recutting your film. I could imagine that he would be like, I don't want anything else to do with Dune after this. Now, just to keep in mind also, they did not have a bad relationship afterwards. The De Laurentiis and Lynch, um, actually with his next film, Blue Velvet, um, the De Laurentiis were producers. They did produce um, parts of that film. So they still had a good relationship afterwards. Lynch has no hard feelings, but as far as that cut of the film, he does mm -hmm. not want his name associated with it since he had nothing to do with the process of recutting that film. Gotcha. So when Ridley Scott did release Blade Runner, the director's cut to critical and financial success, and George Lucas was releasing the special editions of Star Wars, Universal, having dollar signs in their eyes, approached Lynch to restore Dune to his original vision, but he declined, citing that he had moved on to other projects and didn't wish to revisit the past. This extended cut of Dune is now actually out of print due to Universal pulling it from any further distribution, but Alan and I did get our hands on a copy, so we will be reviewing the longer cut as well. In the build-up to release, merchandising went crazy for the film. 
in an Arrow video exclusive documentary hosted by Brian Stillman, who some of you listeners may have seen from the Netflix show, The Toys That Made Us. He talked about after Star Wars, every movie wanted a merchandising line. No one thought in the late 70s kids wanted merchandise from movies. You know, movies weren't thought as marketable to kids as TV shows, but Star Wars completely changed that. A press release from Matchbox Toys Limited, a part of LJN Toys, read, Matchbox are confident that their Dune product range will rapidly take over from Star Wars Toys as the leading action toy brand once the hype and subsequent release of the film create public interest and awareness. Believe it or not, Alan, they legitimately thought Dune was going to be the next Star Wars. It was going to be a worldwide phenomenon. Keep in mind, listeners, Star Wars, the original film, received 11 Academy Award nominations, including like Best Picture, and was a true cultural phenomenon. Oh, they yeah. Were, they were thinking Dune was going to take over from Star Wars, believe it or not. Right. And that's kind of a, a big deal because, yeah, at this point, now we've had, at 84, we've already had the original trilogy of Star Wars come out. Uh, that's kind of a big deal to say that now the now Dune's going to basically take over what Star Wars had put in place. It's going to take over the fame that Star Wars had. That's a big deal. I mean, given that it was the first time it had been put on to like a feature-length film, that could have been... The, a, you know, I could see why people would think that, but that's still a big deal. It's still a big deal. And for those listeners who don't really know the influences of Star Wars, George Lucas did draw a lot from Dune. Um, he drew a lot from Dune Foundation, which um, is on Apple TV Plus and is truly incredible. Uh, it's finally been adapted and also Flash Gordon. So they're thinking Lucas drew from Dune. What if we gave them? The original thing. The only problem is, unlike Luke Skywalker, no one really wanted to be Paul Atreides. That's why making toys for the film didn't really make sense, since this is such a dark and terrifying world. But LJ and Toys did produce pop up books, birthday party sets, bedsheets, toys, including primary and secondary cast, vehicles in the movie, and of course the giant sandworm, which you can go look that up, listeners. Looks more like an adult toy than a children's <laughs> toy. I'm just, I, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> um, also, lunch boxes and a thermos, a Viewmaster set, and a Marvel Comics tie-in. Oh wow! Also, a Dune belt buckle, a board game, and a collectible trading cards. A read-along yeah. children's book that came with a small record or cassette tape with pictures from the movie and four different pencil case sets. Hmm. I, I want I'm that telling Dune you, Alan, belt. I want you want that Dune, Dune belt. belt buckle, yeah. yeah. I'm actually really curious to know what that looks like. So I did actually get to see all of these products. They showed all of these products in the documentary, but it is a lot. Ultimately, as for the action figures, a lot of these toys never made it to production due to unpopularity in sales. Hmm. Yeah, sounds like a lot of foreshadowing. <laughs> Dune was finally premiered in Washington, D.C. on December 3rd, 1984 at the Kennedy Center and was released worldwide on December 14th. At the 1985 Academy Awards, Dune received only one Oscar nomination for Best Sound. It went up against 2010, The Year We Make Contact, 
the river, a passage to India, and ultimately lost out to Amadeus. So how was it received by critics and audiences? Not kindly, to say the least. I wondered. Roger Ebert wrote in his review, It took Dune about nine minutes to completely strip me of my anticipation. Ooh. This movie is a real mess. An incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's harsh. Ah, <laughs> uh, yikes. So, there were two film critics, David Ants and Harlan Ellison, who were notable for giving it a positive review. David Ants, I believe, was at Newsweek. But a lot of the criticism did fall to Universal for poor marketing and keeping the film away from previous screenings. So how did it do at the box office? Well, Alan, I know you were curious about the budget. It had a budget of $40 million. Okay. Which isn't bad, but... Let's be honest, for Dune, it's just not enough. Now, just for also contemporary references, Return of the Jedi had a budget of $32.5 million. So this was working with a bigger budget. And there, there kept being leaks that the reason Dune was taking so long to come to the big screen was because it was running over production shooting schedules and it was running over budget. And there was a lot of lot of nervousness going on with this film as with everybody right. involved were there opening weekend numbers i'm curious to know what those are if they exist so it did open uh with six million dollars in okay. 915 theaters so not too bad mm -hmm. that that was a um, very troubling sign though that universal pictures dune what opened number two at the box office it was beat out by Beverly Hills Cop, um, which actually uh -huh. made twice as much money, and that was in its second week. Ooh. Yeah. Uh-oh. That doesn't look good. So the top five um, coming in at number three was City Heat. Number four was 2010, The Year We Make Contact. And number five was Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. Um also opening that weekend was A Passage to India, which I believe it went up against that in, in Best Sound. Did, didn't I just say that? Um, yeah, it did. It competed with that as well. And also 1984, the adaption of George Orwell's film opened uh, number 16 Aha. at the box office. Opened. Gotcha. At 16. <laughs> Interesting. So it never achieved number one. Uh, it stayed at number two for its second week over Christmas. Over New Year's weekend, it dropped all the way down to number eight and just plummeted from there. E so what did it get in total? I'm curious to know what the damage in is. In total, uh, domestically and worldwide, it grossed $30.9 million, ultimately losing about $10 million as far as the budget for the film goes. But that's not including marketing or merchandising or anything of the kind. So, like I said, once they saw where this was going, they just quit making toys during the release of the film. Um, they just knew nobody's going to buy this stuff. Right. So, yeah, that's a pretty big flop then because you're, yeah, getting most of your budget back, um, but just a budget for, you know, creating the film not for everything else like merchandise and whatnot that's not good i mean even not making back your budget is not good but uh 
Yeah. In this case, it's uh, it's not good at all. It's real bad. Well, critics didn't really like it very much either. Um, it currently has a letterboxed rating of 2.8. That's very low. Mm. Um, it has an IMDb score of 6.4. Um, here's where things get really bad. A 39 Metascore, so it's far in the red. Ooh, yeah. Metascore critics are very not happy about this one. They really don't like it. They weren't happy about it. Also, a 47% um, critic score. So critics considered it rotten. I will say 47% mm -hmm. is close to being split, but the really only positive score to come out of this is 66% Rotten Tomatoes audience score. So a majority of audiences liked it, not like an overwhelming majority, but they thought it was fine. Yeah. Um, for some weird reason, I could not find a cinema score. There should be one, but there's not. So overall, score-wise, not great. The highest one is the audience score for Rotten Tomatoes, and that's about it. That's about it. It, I think it's fared a little, little better over time. Its reputation has somewhat increased as kind of a cult following for the film. And it should be noted that Frank Herbert was pretty devastated when the final cut of the film came out, the theatrical cut, I should say. Um, I could imagine. He, yeah. He, because what he was seeing shot on set, there was so much footage left on the cutting room floor. As we'll talk about with the theatrical cut, you can tell there is quite a bit missing um, editing wise. There mm -hmm. is just stuff that doesn't make sense. Um, he was pretty devastated. He was so involved with this film, so on board with the project. He still did want to support the movie, but this just wasn't his vision that he thought was going to come to life. So he was, I don't believe he hated this film by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was overall just disappointed that what started out so promising kind of crashed so hardly, so badly, I should say. Oh, yeah. Especially for like the first time it's being put out and it's film adaptation for wide audiences. Yeah, I could see why this is be a, dis a big disappointment coming out where the there was a lot of influence and from other parties and all kinds of stuff for wanted to make it more uh, appealing to general audiences comes out and it's kind of a a shell of what it once was um, from what it's, from what we're talking about from what it seems like it's it's rough. Thank you listeners for coming along with me as I have been your guide to the production of this film. Now that you have your guide to Dune, make sure to subscribe to the podcast for Alan and I's full review coming next Monday. And tune in the week after as we return to Arrakis, but on our TVs with the Sci-Fi Channel production of Frank Herbert's Dune. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.